This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Sleep is so important for us, not just for our cognition, but also for our overall health. It is especially important in obesity and weight loss. Let's talk to Dr. Smita Patel about this. Dr. Smita Patel is board certified in neurology, sleep medicine, and integrative medicine. She has over 20 years of experience in the healthcare industry. She has now launched iNeuro Institute, providing integrative neurology and sleep education at www.ineuroinstitute.com. Before we begin, listeners, if you're liking this podcast, please leave a review or a rating wherever you're listening. Welcome, Smita. Oh, hi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you and you know, talk about sleep. I love sleeping. <laughs> it's funny, I posted a question on Facebook at one point in time in one of the groups, basically asking people if they enjoyed sleeping or they thought it was just a necessary evil. And <laughs> a lot of people said they enjoyed sleeping, which is good. So let's talk about sleep. Why do we need this sleep? Right. I mean, do you know any other animal that doesn't sleep? You know, sleep is something that evolution has not gotten rid of yet. And we need it for our health and for our longevity. We need it to feel well. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how it impacts our health, of course. So imagine how you feel when you don't sleep. You feel awful. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> you definitely need to sleep. And like I said, until evolution gets rid of it, it's here to stay. Wow. Yeah, that's true. I mean, sleep is so important. Like I know after a bad call, it's just horrible. You just need to get to bed and you don't feel well. Yeah, I mean, that's when you're working. But people are up, you know, on weekends socializing and having fun. And, you know, nobody wants to go to sleep then. But the next day, you pay the price as well. So even if you're working, yeah, nobody wants to work. But even when you're having fun, right. it can still bear some hardship on you the next day. But can't we catch up on the sleep later on? I mean, you know, people always talk about it and sometimes physicians also talk about catching up on sleep and over the weekend, they work hard during the week or they enjoy, say, on Friday or whatever and Saturday night they try to catch up on sleep. Is there any catching up or no? So technically, there's no catching up. I mean, I think you can sleep a little bit longer and you might feel a little bit better, but it's not like saving money in a bank. So you can't like overspend, you know, over not sleep and then try to catch up on it and push it back into what's normal. So it does take a few days, you know, to really kind of get back into that rhythm, what we call circadian rhythm. Right. And that's why it's not like, so you've already done damage too, by the way, you know, that what we call partial sleep deprivation, which means you didn't go the whole night not going to sleep, but you did a couple of little bit, you know, maybe it was two hours if it was a weekend, but maybe, you know, it was 30 minutes on a regular weekday that I know a lot of people do. And that little bit adds up over the week. And yet, 
you can't make that up. So you can't just sleep an extra two hours on Saturday to make up for the two hours of 30 minutes that you missed out on Monday through Thursday. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. I mean, yes, there's no catching up. It's not like a credit card. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish it were, but uh, <laughs> I guess we're just stuck. So how much is really enough? You know, we talk about sleeping and it's very variable and people these days just pride themselves in sleeping just very few hours or, you know, sometimes you find these videos on YouTube talking about how you can hack your sleep and this and that. So how much is really optimal? Right. So as you mentioned, you know, everyone's a little bit individual. So just like, you know, the amount of calories I may need versus the amount of calories, you know, your best friend needs is going to be a little bit different. But I'm going to say some recommendations based on research. So, you know, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has looked at numerous studies and they say, you know, a newborn, right? They sleep all the time. They're sleeping like 14 to 17 hours out of the 24-hour day. Compared to someone like a toddler, you know, one to two years old, they're getting about 11 to 14 hours of sleep in a 24-hour day. And that's broken up with naps too, of course. I'm already jealous of both of them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I need some sleep. (laughs) And then we talk about, you know, the time frame of children, which I think is very important for me, you know, since I have my own. Right. It, I really want them to be getting enough sleep as well. And so if we're looking at, you know, school-age children, 6 to 13 years of age, something like 9 to 11 hours of sleep. And then teenage years, 14 to 17, we're at like 8 to 10 hours. And adults are 7 to 9 hours. Right. And you know, there's this, you know, misconception, I believe, um, that as you grow older, the, the amount of hours of sleep that you need also goes down. But what about the elderly? Do they also require about seven hours of sleep? Right. I would say that when you're elderly, you still need seven to nine hours of sleep as an adult, no matter you know what age you are, 20 or 60 or 90. But obviously, the quality of sleep changes when you're older, too. Right. Yeah. And so that plays a little bit of an impact, but you still need the same amount of hours of sleep. It's just that quality of it changes a little bit. And so you may not feel you're getting good sleep because of that. But the amount of sleep, like I said, still require is still the same, about seven to nine hours as an adult. Yeah, that's important for people to understand that seven to nine hours is a range. But you know, people, even if they get adults, if they get more than nine hours, that's detrimental to their health as well, because there's data to support that increased amount of sleep is associated with increased amount of other problems, for example, malignancies and whatever have you. Mm-hmm. I know, I know it. And so really, this is where that individual variation kind of comes along, right? Some people might need more than nine hours, but for the majority, and this is where, again, this is what we're talking about and bell-shaped curve, you know, the majority are going to want seven to nine. And again, there are some some people who are going to do okay with six and a half. But I'm talking about majority and the recommendation levels based on numerous studies. Obviously, it doesn't include, you know, me and you specifically, right, our individuals, where we're talking about, you know, what do you need or what do I need? But we are talking about in general, as a right. whole, 
majority of the people will fill, fit into that group range. Yes. Got it, got it. And there are certain, you know, conflicting points of view about afternoon naps. Now, I know if it's a long afternoon nap, obviously it's not recommended. But what about the short afternoon naps or the power naps, so to say? I know that the nap research is kind of conflicted. You know, I think you can go both ways. And based on my experience and my research and read of it, I really think a little power nap is beneficial. Not everybody needs it, but for those who do, I think, you know, a quick 20, 30, up to 45 minute nap is going to be okay. And ideally, we want you to kind of nap on a circadian rhythm, right? So if you nap too close to the evening, you know, that's going to possibly mess up your nighttime sleep. So, so, you know, an afternoon quick power nap might be the ideal time for it, as opposed to just, I'm going to nap anytime I want to in the day. So I think strategically using a nap can be very helpful to maintaining alertness. Yeah, I personally have a great experience with, you know, those power naps. And honestly, I don't have to set an alarm for a power nap. I just wake up after about 20, 30 minutes and I feel really refreshed um, in the afternoon. You know, this whole sleep is one of those things that when you talk about obesity, it's kind of something that's lower down in the priority of anybody. You know, we talk about nutrition, we talk about exercise in terms of lifestyle changes, and then maybe somebody will talk about sleep. What do we know about the role of sleep in obesity? So I'm going to talk a little bit about what sleep deprivation means just before I answer that question, okay? Sure, that's great, yeah. So sleep deprivation, right? So we talked a little bit about it where I say, you know, you're shaving off 30 minutes of sleep every day, Monday through Thursday, let's pretend. And then Friday, you stay up, your bedtime should be 10 p.m., but you stay up until midnight or 1 So now you've accumulated some sleep loss, a little bit on the weekdays, and then a little bit more on Friday night, maybe a little bit more on Saturday. And we're basically calling this partial sleep deprivation. You didn't stay awake all day long, but you did stay up more than you should have on those nights. And what we know about partial sleep deprivation, you know, where you can have six nights of this type of activity where and then it's going to impact your insulin. So it's going to impact some of your hormones, right? So insulin is yeah. one where we're worrying about for especially for patients who have diabetes or even if you don't have diabetes, you know, the increased insulin resistance. I mean, insulin plays a major role in obesity. I mean, regardless of whether you have diabetes or not. Right. Insulin is a big uh, player in the whole pathogenesis of obesity. Right. So first of all, it'll impact. It, we have research on how it impacts insulin and insulin resistance. We have research on how partial sleep deprivation affects two other hormones, which are really key players in obesity as well, which is leptin and ghrelin. So leptin makes you feel full. Right. Ghrelin makes you feel hungry. And when you don't get good sleep, or if you have partial sleep deprivation, the leptin, which makes you feel full, goes down. So now you don't feel as full. And the ghrelin, which makes you hungry, goes up. And so now when you don't get enough sleep, you're hungrier and you have more appetite. And then guess what? 
It's not like you're craving healthy foods. Yeah, right? I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> to add to that, the craving for sweet stuff and the carbohydrates that are, comes with uh, sleep deprivation. Yeah, so it's like another big whammy, you know, so that now I don't sleep enough. And now I have this craving for sugar or other high glycemic index foods. And then that doesn't help me with my weight control. And then that also is like a just a big cycle, right? So I didn't sleep well, I eat terrible, I feel terrible during the day because I didn't sleep well and I don't eat well. And then because of that, we know we have studies on it also impacting how we go to sleep. So people who ate diets high in sugar and refined carbohydrates, you know, the pastas and the breads and the sweets and the cookies, right? actually tend to take longer to fall asleep yeah and they wake up more frequently during the night that's true and a lot of times we talk about that people who have difficulty falling asleep at night should not have a high carbohydrate meal at night time and they should kind of have a lower carbohydrate for dinner so that they can fall asleep better yeah and so there's a, also a research study in the women's health initiative where they looked at increasing fiber so not just like your carbohydrate intake even if you increased fiber So the green leafy vegetables, things like that, where you can get a lot of good fiber. Also, that resulted in less difficulty maintaining sleep. So you were able to stay asleep, you were able to get better restorative sleep, and you had less daytime sleepiness. So it's nice to know that an overall healthy diet is important for good sleep, as well as all around good health. Right. And I mean, it's not just the good sleep and the good sleep also helps with the obesity and a healthy diet also helps with the obesity. So it's a win-win. Absolutely. Right. And so, (laughs) you know, they've looked at other food groups too, like fatty fish. They looked at vitamin D levels. And so all of this was all very nicely correlated to being able to sleep better too. I see. Now let's flip the question. How does obesity affect sleep? Right. So when you're overweight, it does turn out that those people do tend to have more trouble sleeping and having daytime sleepiness. And again, I'm not talking about one individual person. I'm talking about population, right? Generally, people who are overweight tend to have more trouble sleeping and having more daytime sleepiness. And then one of the things that they're also more at risk for, unfortunately, is something called obstructive sleep apnea. So obstructive sleep apnea, when you're sleeping, you stop breathing. And that's partially because that airway closes down when we're going to sleep. Our muscles relax, the airway closes down, air has a hard time getting through that pipe. And that's what we call the obstruction. And it happens when you're sleeping. So apnea, by definition, means that you stopped breathing for at least 10 seconds. Yeah, and people literally stop breathing. Like people who are, for example, their spouses who are sleeping next to them can actually sometimes feel as if they're choking and they're not able to take a breath. Right. And so, you know, this is a silent killer, really, because you yourself don't even know you're doing it. Right. So someone has to witness you, right? So a spouse is great to be able to hear the snoring and see the apnea. A lot of times spouses don't see the apnea, but they definitely can hear the snoring. Right. (laughs) And... Sometimes you can hear yourself snore, but that's pretty rare. Usually it's a silent killer for that reason, because you don't even realize that's happening to you. 
So, you know, this is a silent killer. We talk about obstructive sleep apnea, and I think it's very under-recognized even by physicians because unless you ask these specific probing questions, you really don't get to know. There is no physical sign or physical, you know, when the patient walks into the clinic, there's no physical sign telling you that this patient is suffering from. You can suspect that the patient may have it, but there's really no clear-cut sign uh, you know that this patient is having obstructive sleep apnea and this patient needs treatment for this or whatever so when patients are sitting at home or you know the, our listeners who are sitting at home what should they look for to suspect this so that when they go to their physicians they can say that you know these are the symptoms that i've noticed or i've noticed in my spouse or my significant other and can we get this person tested for sleep apnea Right. So if a spouse is coming with you, you know, they might have heard snoring, right? They might have seen you stop breathing. Um, So those are things that the spouse can help you with. But let's say you don't have a spouse, you know, maybe you sleep alone, right? I think some of the signs that people themselves can be looking for is do they feel tired during the day? Do they have high blood pressure? Do they know they're overweight? You know, do they know that you know, their body mass index is overweight. Do they have a large neck size? So, you know, men have this easier because they know their shirt collar size uh, compared to women. But if your shirt collar is greater than 16 inches, you know, that's also a concern. And that could be one way to know that might have a problem. Men in general are more at risk just because of the time frame, I think. You know, women catch up after menopause. But men can have this earlier on. So luckily, as a woman, we have that estrogen benefit. So those are some signs, though, that, you know, you can kind of get an idea that something's not right. And, you know, again, if you've been told you snore and you know you're tired, or maybe you don't know you're tired because you're, you know, a type A personality, but you know you snore, you have high blood pressure, you know you're overweight, you know, those are things that... And you know your neck size, so... And you know your neck size, right. So, you know, those are signs that you should at least go get, bring it up, go get checked out. You know, it's pretty easy now with a home sleep study to be able to get this diagnosis now, so... Yeah, I think coming prepared with all of this to the physician's clinic makes it much easier because it saves several visits before, you know, this question pops up and the patient gets tested for it. I think and such an important thing to get tested for, especially in patients who have obesity because they're more prone to getting sleep apnea as well. Absolutely. And I want to also say that, you know, we don't have two of us, right? So you might have snoring and just choose not to do anything about it. But And you might not realize how tired you are because, again, there's not two of you. This is just how you feel and you live with it. But if you went and got checked out and you do have sleep apnea, you know, I really want to encourage you to try it because you are your own control. You know how you felt without the treatment and now you know how you feel with the treatment. And you can decide for yourself, how do you feel? How do you sleep? I know so many people that were kind of in denial. They took the trial and they felt so much better. Right. So I think it's worth being assessed and looking at that because of the benefits you get, right? So when you treat your sleep apnea, you're basically helping your oxygen and then you're working on those hormones that 
you don't see, but we talked about the leptin and the ghrelin and the insulin resistance. And you're taking a step towards obesity and kind of helping yourself reverse that. Now, I know there's probably listeners here, though, that are probably not obese, and they might be listening to this, right? And even if you're not obese, you might still have sleep apnea. That's true. I was going to say that, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, regardless, if you have some of these symptoms, it's always beneficial to kind of have a discussion with your primary care physician about this. The other thing I want to point out is, you know, good sleep is important, you know, in obesity and in general health. Uh, Just having good sleep will not cause you to have a weight loss or, you know, cause you to cure your obesity. It's an essential part of the management, but it's not the end-all be-all. So I don't want listeners leaving with this impression that if they can just improve their sleep, that's going to be the key to, you know, losing weight. That's just one of the things that you need to do. But the main thing does remain nutrition, exercise, maybe medications, behavioral treatment as well, whatever is required depending on your physician who sees you. So let's talk about how to get a good night's sleep. Well, there's lots of ways to get a good night's sleep, but I really want to really stress the circadian rhythm part of it, right? Like if I'm going to leave listeners with one thing, I want you to try to stay vigilant about what your bedtime is and what your wake-up time is and be consistent. So that's my like my number one thing is stick to a sleep schedule. I think your body will appreciate you and you will appreciate your body, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> so that's number one, right? We want to try to stick to the schedule. If you have to take a nap, I would say limit your nap to 20, 30, up to 45 minutes in the afternoon. I would also, when it's time for bedtime, it's good to have a nice little ritual, you know, I'm going to read a book, I'm going to get ready for bed, brush my teeth, wash my face, you know, whatever your ritual is. And then um, I'm going to dim the lights and, you know, change into my pajamas and go to sleep. Make your bed conducive to sleep. So it starts with a good mattress, of course, but, you know, a lot of people do sleep better in a cooler bedroom. With the pandemic, everyone's working from everywhere. And I know working in your bedroom might be your only option. But, you know, we really try to stress not to work, eat, check your email, all of that in your bedroom. You know, find another place to do that. Keeping your room as a place to sleep is a positive association for sleep. And I think it's a nice thing to kind of get into that habit of that. And, you know, really trying to focus on relaxing and sleeping. So, Thank goodness the presidential election is over, right? Because people <laughs> were getting really hyped up yeah. about... Now they can get a good night's sleep, Now I guess. we can kind of, you know, put that behind us and, yeah, and try to just focus on relaxing and sleeping. You know, and there's still always going to be politics, but I'm just saying, like, that's a big chunk of anxiety that everyone had. And then, you know, the hardest thing, I think, is the phone. We are so attached to our phone. Everything's done on the phone. And so, you know, I think, you know, just turning off the Wi-Fi, you know, just don't even get (laughs) any connection to your phone. And I think you might sleep better as well. Yeah, I think the other thing is uh, any screen for that matter, basically anything that emits blue light, it does inhibit uh, the melatonin. And that's really critical and that's why you know a lot of times now these phones and the screens have blue light filters and the reason being because of the groundbreaking work 
done by one of the researchers who basically discovered this pigment in our uh, in our eyes that is sensitive to blue light and that really just inhibits melatonin in the presence of blue light and so really you know it's very important to actually turn down your screens or turn off your screens and turn off your phones for probably an hour or two prior to trying to sleep and you know in the evening um, now we have these blue light filter glasses and people can start using those to help them you know limit the blue light exposure in the evening yeah, good point. I love those blue blockers. You know, again, if you have to work and, you know, you have to be on the computer or something, kind of putting those on in the evening time, I think is a good way to start kind of minimizing that blue light. You know, I wanted to share one more thing with the listeners is that a Fitbit, everyone has these Fitbits, right? So Apple yeah. Watch is <laughs> Fitbit, kind of tracking their sleep. And one of the studies that came out of that was that going to bed at a consistent time is correlated to getting more sleep. So those users... This came out of Fitbit. This is so cool. Yeah, I know. So I thought, I, I thought I'd like to share that. So users of the Fitbit whose bedtime varied by 30 minutes get 35 minutes more sleep than users whose bedtime varies by two hours. So that makes sense. You know, if you, yeah. you have a plus or minus 10 o'clock bedtime of 30 minutes, plus or minus 30 minutes from a 10 p.m. bedtime, versus you don't have a bedtime and your bedtime could be 10 o'clock or it could be midnight, you know, three o'clock, whatever, you're more likely to get more consistent sleep if you just have a, a scheduled bedtime. So that goes back to my main point of stay consistent with your bedtime. And I agree with you as well that, you know, that sleep won't maybe solve your answer to the obesity problem. It's like a piece of a puzzle. But I do think that if you're trying to get those last five pounds off or something of that sort, you know, where it's where you've kind of like, you know, hit a barrier and you haven't entered, fixed your sleep, I think it's something that could really be of great benefit. And you might notice that it's a lot easier now to shed those extra five pounds once you've been a little more consistent with your sleep. Sure. And talk to me about, you know, the nutrition and optimal dinner so that you can get a good night's sleep. Right. So again, I would prefer a healthy dinner. You know, if you must have a bedtime snack, I like it to have a little bit of protein with a good carbohydrate. So, you know, I usually tell my patients, you know, a half an apple and some peanut butter, right? So a healthy carb, which is the apple, and then some fat and protein, which is mm -hmm. in your peanut butter or any nut butter for that matter. I would use a tablespoon of the nut butter and a half an apple, you know, something of that sort in terms of quantity, right? If you have to have a bedtime snack, having that proportion with, you know, carbs, fat, and protein is what our body is basically asking for to make the nutrients it needs to get a good night's sleep. So people, if you may have heard of, you know, tart cherry to try to help you with a good night's sleep, right? To try to basically boost the melatonin and, and help you um, kind of get a good night's sleep that way. Similar concepts. Again, I am, you know, a big fan of not I've eating. heard of milk. Yeah, same idea, right? Like, so warm glass of milk, just to give you some of that tryptophan benefits. But I was going to say that, you know, I'm a bigger fan of not eating at least four hours before bedtime. So I find that that is probably better 
science for me, you know, to show the how getting eating a dinner four hours before bedtime gives your body t- some time to digest it. Yeah. And then there's some concept of that, you know, fasting period too. And then I think the other part of it is also the fact that, you know, if you lie down immediately after eating something, you sometimes have the acid reflux and that itself can imp- impair your sleep and make you uncomfortable. Right. And that's another bad thing about if you're, especially if you're overweight, because now if you're overweight, you're more at risk for having the acid reflux too, because the kind of the, you know, the stomach is being pushed on and that's causing some of the contents to leak into your esophagus. And so that's what causes that heartburn feeling. So yeah, so another problem with being overweight as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And then lastly, I think it's very important to know that having anything that is high in salt will also impair good quality sleep because uh, for dinner because you will be thirsty throughout the night. So that's not good. And of course, limiting alcohol, that goes without saying. I think that's common knowledge that you should try and avoid alcohol as much as possible and try avoiding caffeine in the evening hours, try to limit it to just the morning hours. These are common things that are, um, you know, that go without saying. Absolutely. I mean, I know people who drink coffee all day long, you know, but again, for the majority of the population, having coffee after afternoon hours, you know, the caffeine is not recommended from a sleep perspective. So, you know, really, we want you to try to, um, and a lot of people actually like to just stay away from liquids in general near bedtime because then that makes them have to use the bathroom during the night. So it doesn't help their sleep quality during the night. So again, you know, have your dinner four hours before bedtime if, if possible. And then if you have to have a bedtime snack, something with a healthy ratio of carbs, protein, and fat is what I would probably kind of suggest. I'm just curious. I don't know if you know the answer to this. You know, a lot of times you go to restaurants and they'll offer you coffee or tea after dinner. I don't know. It just doesn't seem right to me. I don't know where this came about. Do you know how this came about? I actually don't know how it comes about, but I think like in European countries, I think that's the etiquette, right? To kind of like Yeah, but it's so weird. Like it's so counterintuitive because if you're going to have coffee, maybe it's good if you're driving back, but what happens after that? How do you get to sleep? (laughs) You know, again, I, I have no idea. I, my personally, I experimented with caffeine during medical school and I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to need to stay awake. And it turns out I learned, you know, just from trial and error and learning the hard ways that actually when I drank caffeine, I became more tired, if that's believe it or not. And it was just better for me to just call it a night, stop studying, go to sleep, wake up refreshed, and then study again. So again, and I'm glad the science backs that up too, that, <laughs> <laughs> that you go to sleep and your brain actually processes all that information. So from a memory perspective, uh, you're going to do better too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah well that's been an interesting discussion smitha do you have any parting thoughts a couple things right so again an overall healthy diet is important for good sleep as well as all around good health so i do want you to kind of leave with that important note and then i want you to also remember to be consistent with bedtime and wake time and i think you will be as a top two tips will be on your way to success and the right nutrition. I think that would be very important as well. You know, avoiding um, alcohol and avoiding uh, caffeine late in the evening. 
Absolutely. Right. Those are, you know, some good tips. And, you know, hopefully we can all learn something from this, right? And and not yeah. having that extra sugar near bedtime. So <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this has been an interesting discussion. That's all we have time for. Thank you so much, Smita, for joining me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. I'll see you all next time. Listeners, if you liked today's episode, please drop us a review or a comment and tell us what you've loved and what you would like to hear more of. Thank you so much, Smita. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. And if you'd like to learn more, come visit me on iNeuroInstitute.com. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm going to leave a link for your website on my website so that listeners can, you know, if they go to my website, they can find uh, where you're at. Awesome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity Podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.